and welcome to Not a Hoax, Not a Dream, the podcast about comic book characters who just don't quit. You can try to write them off, but they'll just get written back in. I'm your host, Ben Rathbone, and I'm recording from inside a mysterious laboratory I've inherited after being transformed into a monstrous creature offensive to the very concept of humanity. I think one of the elaborate machines in here can change me back to my normal self, but I'm also kind of afraid I'll press a wrong button and clone myself or call the fire department or something. Anyway, enough about me. How are you doing? Have you seen the new Batman movie yet? I have. It was pretty good, I thought. One thing I really liked was Andy Serkis as Alfred. Never expected to see the motion capture actor for Gollum play Batman's butler, but here we are. Speaking of which, Alfred Pennyworth is our character this episode. You probably knew that from the episode's name, but I still feel I have to say it in order to transition to the next section. And if there's anything this podcast excels at, it's smooth... What the hell is that? Is that a bird? Is it a plane? Well, just a guy in a pair of tights and a cape. The character of Batman first appeared in 1939 in Detective Comics number 27 the creation of artist Bob Kane, with a lot of help from ghostwriter Bill Finger. The Cape and Cow detective was an instant success. His origin is introduced in Detective Number 38, where we find out Batman is Bruce Wayne, who swore on his parents' grave to dedicate his life to a war on crime. For the better part of his first year, Batman was a loner, a solitary and mysterious vigilante who stalked the night. But Bill Finger eventually got tired of the character not having anyone to talk to, he was sick of always having the right Batman thinking to himself. The greatest detective in literature, Sherlock Holmes, had Watson, so why shouldn't Batman have a partner to explain his deductions to? He brought these concerns to Kane, and the two developed an assistant, or sidekick, if you will, for the hero. Enter Robin, the boy wonder. Starting with Detective Comics number 38 in April of 1940, Batman was no longer a one-man army in his fight against crime. Once the costumed teenager entered the picture, Batman's stories slowly became less dark and pulpy, and more colorful. Batman may no longer be alone at this point, but it's established that Bruce Wayne inherited the great wealth of his parents, and two people do not fill a mansion. Does Robin really handle the entire upkeep of the grounds during his weekly chores? This glaring oversight is finally addressed in 1943. Batman is so popular by this point that Columbia Pictures produces a 15-chapter theatrical serial, featuring the character in his first on-screen appearance. The writers of the serial, Victor McLeod, Leslie Swabaker, and Harry Frazier, decide that Bruce Wayne should have a butler, and name him Alfred. DC likes the idea so much they decide to do it themselves in the comics, before the release of the serial. And so Alfred makes his debut in Batman number 16. Here Comes Alfred by Bob Kane, with writing by Don Cameron, inks by Jerry Robinson and George Russos, and letters by George Russos. The introductory splash page gives us our first look ever at Alfred. He's a portly fellow with thick jowls, wearing a Sherlock Holmesian deerstalker's cap with pipe and giant magnifying glass to match. He's casually reading a book named How to Be a Detective, while strolling amidst a chaotic fight in stately Wayne Manor. But before we get to anything like that scene, gentle listener, let's go to Alfred's arrival in Gotham. He comes by boat and unloads his luggage at the same time as fellow passenger Gaston Leduc. Nice luggage you have there, Gaston. Ah, haha, I see you have the same kind. Where'd you get yours? 
Indeed, the two men carry identical large yellow luggages, while Alfred has to check his. The mysterious Leduc is exempt. The most scandalous thing among Alfred's possessions is a book named How to Be a Detective in Ten Easy Lessons, so Port Security sends the foreigner on his way. But before the Englishman can get very far, he's attacked by three lowlifes who were scoping him out in a car outside the docks. Alfred remarks that he hasn't quite finished his book yet, so gives fight rather than surrender his effects. He puts up a good one too, but it's interrupted by none other than our heroes, the dynamic duo, the caped crusaders, the protectors of Gotham. That's right, boys and girls, it's the vengeance of the night and boy wonder themselves, Batman and Robin. The would-be muggers flee at the sight of the costume crime fighters and manage to escape by car. Batman and Robin have just missed their chance to catch international criminal Martin Stiletti. Alfred proposes a team-up. I myself am an amateur criminologist of little experience but much talent, and I shall give you the benefit of my assistance in your investigations. Batman tells him, uh, sure, yeah, just give us a call and we can talk. Later, at Wayne Manor, Robin is like, Hey, good one, Bruce. Call us. He doesn't even know who we are. How's he gonna find us when the smartest people in the world have tried and failed? Then the doorbell rings. When Bruce Wayne opens it, it's none other than Alfred. After setting down his luggage, the Englishman apologizes for being so late. He's had a time of it. Took him a year to find proper passage, then his ship was torpedoed. Oh, and just now he met Batman and Robin. Imagine that. Oh, so you mean you don't know... Shut the fuck up, dick! Uh, yeah, so why are you here? Alfred introduces himself as their new butler. You see, his father Jarvis was the Wayne family's butler for years, and Alfred was meant to continue the family business after his pa's retirement. Instead, he went into acting. Still... He swore upon his father's deathbed to change his ways and carry on the tradition at last. The bachelor and ward of Wayne Manor are skeptical of this new arrangement, but let the man stay at least the night, having come so far. It isn't long until Stiletti and friends catch up to their quarry, however, and when they set off an alarm, Bruce and Dick spring into action as Batman and Robin. A fight ensues. Pow! Bam! Crack! Actually, there's no sound effects. That That's a Silver Age thing, and we're not there yet. Still... Batman does say, I'll bet you get a kick out of this, as he kicks a guy, so all is good. During the fracas, one of the bad guys dives out a window, and the dynamic duo give chase, leaving Alfred to tie up one of the other thugs. Instead of doing that, though, Alfred goes to check on his masters, who he strangely can't find anywhere. Hope they're okay. During the search, the untied criminal wakes up and gets all stabby with the butler, but Alfred knocks the man out with a clean hit. On its way down, the unconscious body bumps into a heavy shield mounted to a wall, and this triggers a secret mechanism, revealing a secret passage. Alfred follows the stairs down and wonders at what he sees before him. A criminological laboratory, and a plane with bat-shaped wings. Alfred feels he is on the verge of a startling deduction, so he consults his detective book. Let's see. Batman and Robin are... The best friends of Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson. Or, wait, could it be? No, Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson are Batman and Robin. Speaking of those guys, they've caught up to Saletti and his accomplice in an empty theater. The two evildoers pop out of a balcony and hurl weighted ropes at our heroes, tying them up and hoisting them into the air. Stiletti intends on burning them alive in the theater, and if the crime fighters attempt to escape, they'll surely fall to their deaths. 
but not if Alfred can help it. But uh, can he help it? He enters stage right just as the criminals exit stage left, but doesn't see his masters until Batman manages to kick over a rope, which Alfred thinks is a ghost. But he gets his shit together soon and unties the dynamic duo. The now trinamic trio track down the criminals before they can find their next target, the diplomat Gaston Leduc. You see, it was all a confusion between the identical luggages. If you guessed that, go get yourself a nice treat. You deserve it. The thugs thought Alfred had in possession the crown jewels of Leduc's nation. Batman and Robin make short work of the crooks. The caper resolved, our three heroes head home. The next night, Bruce and Dick decide it may be nice to keep the butler around, but that they'll have to be careful with their secret identities. When the bat signal lights up the sky, Alfred shows up with a freshly pressed cape, cowl, and mask. Beg pardon, sirs. You'll be going out directly, and I thought I might assist you with your uniforms. Bruce and Dick try to play dumb, but Alfred tells them he deduced their secret identities the night before. Duly impressed, Batman swears his servant to secrecy before heading off to beat up some more crooks. The last line of the comic reads, Keep an eye on Alfred. You haven't seen the last of him. Years and years ago, I bought myself a DC treasury collection of a lot of the first Batman stories ran in Detective Comics. This is Golden Age era stuff, where Batman was a lonely dark figure fighting strange occultists and creatures of the night. I've never read any Silver Age stuff, though. This story is still in the Golden Age, technically, but just flipping through the stories that came before and reading Alfred's, it's already much different in tone than any of those earlier appearances. The hallmarks and motifs that define the Silver Age are rolling on out. I mean, if one ignores the fact that he appeared to be dead, it's almost peaceful. When the 1943 Batman serial releases, William Austin portrays an Alfred with a very different appearance than the one in the comics. So in Detective Comics number 83, Alfred takes a vacation at a health resort, where he slims down and grows a mustache. While Alfred's first appearances played for laughs, the character became more serious over the years. He gains the surname Pennyworth, and in 1957's Batman number 110, gets an entirely revised backstory. The swearing to be a butler at his father's deathbed bit is the same, but in this new version, he wakes up to the sound of moaning on his first night at Wayne Manor. He follows the sound down to the Batcave, where he finds an injured Batman. He treats the wounds himself and earns the crime fighter's trust. Oh yeah, and he's a retired British intelligence agent now, not just former actor. How long could it be before Alfred's duties as Batman's butler placed the man in danger? Let's find out in 1964's Detective Comics, number 328. Written by Bill Finger, pencils by Sheldon Modoff, inks by Joe Gill, and letters by Gaspar Saladin. Alfred Pennyworth is alone in the Batcave when a hot tip comes in from Commissioner Gordon. Batman and Robin are away helping out Superman, so Alfred takes the call himself. It's an update on the movements of the Tri-State Gang, a union of multiple criminal organizations throughout the tri-state area Gotham is a part of. So that would be... Um, give me a second here. Gotham is canonically in southern New Jersey, so I guess the three states are Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. 
the more you know. These bad dudes are apparently up to no good, so rather than wait for Batman and Robin to return, Alfred is on the case in his rad motorcycle. I'm kidding, his motorcycle is actually kind of lame. I want it to be cool, but like, whatever you're imagining when I say motorcycle, it's not as cool as that, unfortunately. What is cool is the infrared chemical on the tires of the bike, which the Batmobile is specially equipped to detect, with headlights that illuminate the infrared enough to be viewed through a special filter windshield. That's how, after returning home, Batman and Robin are able to follow Alfred's trail to Old Gotham Prison. The prison has been deserted for years, presumably because Gotham has a shortage of regular criminals, ever since the thematic weirdos started showing up. Once inside the prison, the dynamic duo jump into action, but are tripped up by trap stairs and easily captured. This would be the end of our heroes, except the crime bosses of the different gangs making up the Tri-State Gang argue over who gets to do the deed. Because of course they do. The elected chairman of the collective, because the Tri-State Gang is a democracy, obviously, says each gang leader needs to make their case, and he'll decide. Yeah, she... I should kill Batman because he chucked a spear into one of my members' chariot wheels while he was trying to steal a priceless necklace from an actress playing Cleopatra. She? No, I should kill Batman because he surfed a log down a lumber mill sluice and punched my brother, he did. Forget about it. What are you talking about? I should kill Bats because he stopped my diamond heist. Those were my New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware accents. Pretty good. I think. The chairman chooses the log mill brother guy, whose name is Duke. So Duke pulls out a gun and shoots Batman through the head. Just kidding. Instead of shooting him right then and there, Duke plans out some elaborate trap instead because them's the rules. By the way, Batman and Robin have just been standing around this whole time listening to them talk. Like, they're not unconscious anymore. They're barely constrained, just one set of handcuffs binding them together. But not to anything, just each other, like one arm each. So, I mean, fine. Chairman says they don't have time to elaborately kill a superhero right now, so they stuff the two in a prison cell, but not before revealing their plan, because, again, them's the rules. They're gonna go find a pirate treasure. Yep, that's it. They've got a map, so they know where it is and everything. That, uh... Yeah, I don't even think that's illegal, but whatever. The gang leaves one guy to guard the cell, and Batman and Robin easily dispatch with him and escape. They go off to find Alfred. Alfred, realizing his masters are here, finds an empty cell and assumes they're dead. Batman also finds an empty cell that Alfred escaped out of and assumes he's dead. Both men swear that the death of the other will not be in vain. Meanwhile, the Tri-State Gang has set up a hot air balloon show to distract all the townspeople near where the treasure is buried, and they roll up to the site with all their heavy digging equipment. Batman and Robin are not far behind them in the Batmobile, and Alfred not far behind them in his weak-ass bike. As the caped crime fighters get out of their car to confront the Tri-State Gang, their butler is able to see something from his vantage point that Batman and Robin can't. A steam shovel is about to dump a boulder directly on top of the duo. With no time to spare, or even to shout, hey, look out, or something, the loyal manservant rides in close to push his friends out of the way. Unfortunately, the boulder finds Alfred instead, crashing on top of the butler, crushing him. Batman and Robin make short work of the gang, but it's a Pyrrhic victory. 
They've won the day again, but this time lost a friend. Like I said, this is my first time really reading early Batman stories outside of his first appearances, so I have no idea how representative this is. One thing I really try to keep in mind while reading this, though, is that the conventions and tropes in these stories weren't played out by this point in time. They were cutting edge. Sure, it makes absolutely no sense for a group of hardened criminals to stuff Batman into a cell rather than end him right there, but kids weren't reading these things for realism. The idea was to build suspense and intrigue, to wow with bright colors and spooky locations, and I can see how this story would do all of those things. Gotta say, I preferred Alfred's first appearance to his showing here. He had a kind of cartoonish luck in that older story that I enjoyed a lot. But in this issue, that luck has all but run out. Superman, how can you be... Alive? Toy Man sent me to the future. Then Vandal Savage and I fought some giant cockroaches and... It's complicated. Two years pass on by after Alfred met his fate at the hands of the boulder. Well, boulders don't have hands, but you know what I mean. On January 12th, 1966, part one of High Diddle Riddle Smack in the Middle premieres on ABC. It's the first episode of the Batman live-action TV series. Originally intended to be a more serious production, producer William Dozier decided the only way to do a live-action treatment of the comics was to make it a comedy. This led to the show's infamous campy style, which defined the popular image of Batman for years. In the comics, Batman and Robin continue on without their faithful retainer, as best as they can. A strange, formidable foe named the Outsider shows up in Gotham. The villain plagues our heroes from afar, using his superhuman powers to control people and inanimate objects like puppets to enact his evil will. In one encounter, he even turns the Batmobile itself against the dynamic duo. Batman and Robin next run afoul of the Outsider in Detective Comics, number 356. Written by Gardner Fox, pencils by Sheldon Modolf, inks by Joe Giella, and letters by Gaspar Saladin. It's just another day at Wayne Manor when a truck arrives to drop off an unexpected delivery. Two coffins, one engraved with the name Bruce Wayne, and the other Dick Grayson. Even stranger are the contents. Wax figures of Batman and Robin. Even stranger, the wax figures come to life and speak. Batman and Robin, in one hour you both shall be dead. How do you propose to spend the last 60 minutes of life? Hunt for me or hide from me? The dynamic duo choose hunt and discover this must be the doing of their foe, the outsider. They begin their search by catching up with the truck that delivered the coffins, and after running the vehicle off the road with the Batmobile, the duo is confronted by the Grasshopper Gang, which is pretty much what it sounds like. They're a bunch of dudes dressed like grasshoppers. And finally, we get some proper sound effects. Rump. Swack. Gwonk. Scoonch. Thwonk. The crime fighters beat up the grasshoppers, but this leaves them only 40 minutes left to live and without any leads. By the time they get back to the Batcave and run tests on the coffins, their time is down to 20 minutes, but they've discovered some key information in a short period of time. The Outsider uses the mysterious Radiation O to control inanimate objects. They've discovered something else through deduction as well, something neither of them wants to admit is true. Whoever the Outsider is, he not only knows their secret identities, 
but in past encounters has proved he knows the location of the Batcave, and even how to access the crime hotline. There's only one person who possibly fits, but at the same time it couldn't possibly be him. The two use some of their last precious minutes to drive to Gotham Cemetery and inspect Alfred Pennyworth's mortal remains, kept in the Wayne family mausoleum. The corpse seems to be there intact, but Batman takes fingerprints to be sure. Alfred's body is in the coffin, but then who is the outsider? We get the answer in a flashback that takes us to the night after Alfred was laying the rest, and it's Alfred. Alfred is the outsider. See, what happened is physician, physicist, biologist, all-around scientific genius Brandon Crawford was wandering around Gotham Cemetery wearing his patented audiometer headphones. Unclear why he was doing this, but the point is he detected a moaning coming from the Wayne family mausoleum, went to check it out, and lo and behold, Alfred was alive. Kind of. So like any physician, physicist, biologist, all-around scientific genius worth his salt, Brandon brought the body back to his laboratory to experiment on and completely revive. He subjected barely living Alfred to an experimental cellular regeneration treatment. It was completely untested, but what the hell? What could go wrong? A fucking lot could go wrong. First, the cellular regeneration didn't contain itself to Alfred's body. Instead, it seeped out into the air knocking Brandon into a catatonic coma and transforming him into a perfect biological replica of Alfred. Secondly, while the experimental treatment did revive Alfred, he came back mutated with chalk-white skin and round welts covering his body. Worse than that, his very mind was corrupted. As the former butler came to, his last thoughts, that he must save Batman and Robin at all costs, had twisted in reverse. Now, he wanted to kill Batman and Robin. No longer feeling like a human at all, the creature that emerged now called himself the Outsider. The Outsider's first act was to place the dude that now looked like his former body into his former coffin so no one would suspect the Outsider's true identity. Which, as we know, worked. Back in the present, Batman and Robin are hot on the trail of the Outsider's location by tracking a high concentration of O-radiation. They only have two minutes left as they crash through the window of the Outsider's headquarters, which we the readers recognize as Brandon's laboratory. The Outsider uses telekinesis to lob a mirror into Robin, and attempts to do the same with several other items to Batman. But the only thing that halts the Dark Knight's path is seeing Robin turn into a coffin. You see, at the beginning of the issue, Robin touched his coffin first, which turns out is the trigger for the death countdown. This leaves Batman just 30 seconds to figure out how to not be a coffin. Looking around at a laboratory filled with machinery, the caped crusader sees a control panel with two dials, so he figures that's gotta be the machine controlling the coffin turning into stuff, because there's two of them. He's right. They don't call him the world's greatest detective for nothing, I guess. Batman punches Outsider, and by pure luck, the villain knocks into the lever to the cellular regeneration machine. The machine flares up and functions a whole lot more smoothly on accident than it did that other time on purpose. The chalk skin and blemishes fade away, and Alfred appears before us. The butler is able to briefly explain everything to Batman before he passes out in exhaustion, the memory of it all fading from him completely. Oh, Robin is okay too for some reason that isn't explained. 
I guess because Batman broke the machine. The duo decide that they must never tell Alfred about any of this shit. It killed a guy. Like, for real this time. They then go grab Crawford from the mausoleum and use the regeneration machine to bring him back to his normal self. Despite the fact that Brandon failed to properly operate his own invention, Batman suggests the man reach out to Bruce Wayne for a science job. Then, the wealthy entrepreneur crime fighter, his ward, and their butler return to Wayne Manor, united once again. The end. Okay. Not a whole lot of that story made any sense, but what's beautiful is that it just doesn't matter. At all. It's so... confident. The dude has a machine that can turn people into coffins, okay? Deal with it. About that machine. It didn't fit into the synopsis, but the story doesn't tell you exactly how Batman figures out which machine to destroy. Instead, the narration asks you, Did you deduce the way Batman did? Which machine had changed Robin? and would change him into a coffin. And the thing is, I did. When Robin asks him about it later, Batman answers, Since we were marked for double death, since the outsider boasted his would be a double triumph, I chose the only machine in the room that had two dials. Which is basically just a flashier way of what I said. Amazing. The debate of how campy versus how dark Batman should be is an endless one. The best answer is probably that there's room for all kinds of interpretations as long as the story is good, or at least entertaining. But to add a little more context of how Batman has evolved over his many years, I want to share something from the letter page of the issue just summarized. Rick Wood, from Franklin, Louisiana, writes, I thought that the story in Detective Comics 352 was a good story, but I didn't like it. The reason I didn't like it was one line on page 6, where Robin says, Holy jets! Not only is this not particularly inspired dialogue, it's not the sort of thing our Robin says. This is an expression that comic 23-year-old teenager who plays Robin on TV uses. Batman in the comics is not so bad that he is good. He's just plain good in the first place. He's been around for almost 30 years. Camp has only been popular for one or two years, and already every article on the subject predicts that the fad will vanish in a matter of months. Batman will be around long after camp is gone, unless he starts trying to be so bad he's good, and winds up so bad he's gone. And that's going to do it for this episode of Not a Hoax, Not a Dream. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, you can always help the show out by following us, giving us a good review, telling a friend about it, all that cool stuff. I'm not 100% sure who the next episode is going to be on, so find out next time in two weeks. Same bat time, same bat channel.